0: It's the media buzz meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, let's see what's buzzy out there today. Let's begin out in Los Angeles, where the LA Times has named the new executive editor, Kevin Merida. is a guy I've known for a very long time. He's had a pretty uh, eclectic career. He spent 20 years at the Washington Post. He was a reporter, he was an editor. He rose to the number two job of managing editor. Then he went to ESPN as a senior vice president, and he became the founder and editor in chief of The Undefeated, which covers sports, but also race, fashion, arts, and other stuff. Uh, the Los Angeles Times is interesting. First of all, we're at a point in history now where I don't have to say that Kevin Meredith will be the first African-American to run the L.A. Times. He's the second one because Dean Baquet, now editor of the New York Times, I once went out to L.A. to interview him when he had taken over that paper. At that time, the L.A. Times had a lot of national ambitions because it had a huge Washington bureau, a lot of foreign bureaus. It really was sort of the third... Um, paper in America after the Washington Post and the New York Times. You've put the Wall Street Journal in a slightly different category. Now, given the crunch in the newspaper industry, uh, not so much, although uh, it had been part of the Tribune Company. Along came a local physician, uh, a rich guy who bought it. Uh, he added another 100 you know, staffers, about 500 now. One time it was 1,000. So you don't you have a shrunken national, you know, basically it focuses on Los Angeles and California, which is makes sense because that's his strength. Nobody can match the L.A. Times uh, for that. Um, I'll tell you one thing. I'm sure we'll have a good sports section under Kevin Merida, a pretty popular guy uh, in the news business. The Hill has uh, an interesting uh, piece about Jill Biden being a key asset going out to try to sell uh, her husband's proposals, all the spending, the many trillions of dollars. She has been on the road. First Lady Jill Biden uh, joined her husband at a Virginia elementary school. This was yesterday. Just week alone, she's going to Utah, Nevada, Colorado. Um, and what's interesting about this is that, at least as is framed by this story, um, because she is a teacher, decades as a teacher, because she has long experience as a political spouse. I mean, I've met her at a couple of receptions, and she's just very poised. You know, when you've been the second lady of the United States, she was the wife of the vice president, of course, and, you know, the wife of a senator for so long. You know you know how to play the game. You know how to do this. She went out and said, for example, our schools accept everyone, regardless of age or race or income or family legacy offer classes that are flexible so students don't have to choose between work and school. They train for real-world jobs. Talking here, I think, about community colleges and the proposal of two years of free community college. Um, And it makes sense. Now, you might say, well, Jill Biden is getting all this great press and Melania Trump never got that kind of press. And that's true. I think the press is predisposed to like Jill and was predisposed not to like Melania because of her husband. At the same time, in fairness, Melania... Trump, you know, had her initiatives like Be Best, but she wasn't out on the road a lot selling her husband proposals. Uh, she saw her primary job as being a mom uh, to their son, Barron. Um, so she just had a different uh, view of the role of first lady. All right, I got a lot to get to today, so let's stop screwing around. Number one, the battle over Liz Cheney. Now, what's fascinating about this is, I mean, she's one member of Congress, Congresswoman from from Wyoming. Okay. She's a little bit more noteworthy because of her last name. Her father was vice president of the United States, as the entire universe knows. And uh, she is the number three Republican in the House. She's part of the leadership team. The question now is, for how long? So as you probably know, if you haven't been living in a cave, uh, Liz Cheney is under uh, enormous pressure now because of the fight, the battle the schism that has developed between her and one Donald Trump. Now, it doesn't shock me that they're at odds or at uh, some kind of political war because Trump ran not only against the Obama administration, he ran not only against Joe Biden in 2020, um, but he ran in 2016 against the Bush administration. He ran against George W. Bush and Iraq and foreign wars And by extension, he also ran against Dick Cheney. So they were never going to be, you know, bosom buddies. Uh, Right now, there was a big uh, House uh, Republican retreat. And this is what has brought this to the fore. And everybody is going nuts over this. Why? Because it's a proxy war. The fate of Liz Cheney, while in and of itself not crucial to the future of America, has become this proxy war for Donald Trump's assault on that portion of the Republican Party that does not go along with his claims, his unproven claims of a stolen election. It does not uh, pledge loyalty to him. I mean, it really is a civil war, and Liz Cheney has become the face of it, along with the 45th president. So yesterday, she made clear that she's not backing down. She is going to continue to go at it with Donald Trump. She knows the risk. She knows it's caused her a lot of grief back in her home state in Wyoming, and she knows that her job as a member of the leadership is threatened. So what happened is the latest round, because there's been a number of rounds of this, got kicked off when the former president put out one of his statements, you know, emailed to the press, that said the presidential election will, quote, will be from this day forth known as the big lie, all caps, exclamation point. Now, Obviously, the big lie is something that many in the media have used, that many Trump critics have used to describe his continued insistence, and he's, he raises this constantly. It's not like he's saying, okay, let's move on. Uh, let's get more elected uh, Republicans elected in 2022. Let's criticize the Biden administration, and maybe I'll run again uh, four years from now. No. What he's doing is he's still fighting over the election that he says he won. Unfortunately for Donald Trump, you had his own Justice Department under Bill Barr uh, finding no evidence of widespread fraud. You had all of those lawsuits, federal court, state court, uh, and then now there's, you know, they're still sort of pushing recounts and audits and, and, and state parties that are loyal to Donald Trump are trying to censure people who are not loyal to Donald Trump. I mentioned on yesterday's podcast Mitt Romney getting booed at a censure vote against the former GOP nominee in 2012, now senator from Utah, failing by a pretty narrow margin. So Trump puts out this, oh, this is the election was the big lie, not what Trump says about it being the big lie. And um, Liz Cheney came out quickly. She said on Twitter, the 2020 presidential election was not stolen. Anyone who claims it was is spreading the big lie, all caps, turning their back on the rule of law and poisoning our democratic system. Well, if you think Trump was going to turn the other cheek on that one, a few hours later, he was back as if he was on Twitter. Uh, Facebook's supposed to decide today whether he comes back or not, by the way. Released another statement attacking Cheney by calling her a big-shot warmonger and saying people in Wyoming never liked her much. Well, they've liked her enough to uh, uh, elect and reelect her. Um, so just a little background here. You know, Liz Cheney... Um, she is basically saying that Trump's false statements about the election is an issue of principle. But she, uh, the question is, how much support will she have? Because you may recall there was a secret vote for the leadership in January. And at that time, uh, she was easily reelected, despite all of the uh, pretty prominent people in the GOP who go after her. When it came to the rank and file, when they didn't have to put their names to it, Uh, Liz Cheney easily reelected to the number three leadership post. But now she really seems to have Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, against her. He's increasingly been saying things like, well, she's focusing too much on the past and my caucus is not happy with her and she needs to be a force for unity um, and on and on and on. So here, for example, is a tweet from another Republican congressman from Florida, John Rutherford. Liz Cheney does not understand responsibilities to leadership. She claims that I and 146 other Republicans violated the U.S. Constitution with our January 6th vote to challenge electors. She's wrong. She's now become an obstruction to leadership unity and should step down from her leadership duties as Republican Conference Chair. Now, of course, Liz was one of 10 House Republicans to vote to impeach Trump in January. So that immediately put her, you know, on the other side of this uh, war. Um, Now, it seems like her position is weakening, but you know, again, uh, if it's not a public vote, then a lot of people might want to support her. Um, here is what CNN reported that she said. What it was was I said? It was a Republican gathering. It was an American Enterprise Institute gathering, Sea Island, Georgia, where Jimmy Carter used to go uh, on vacation, the former president, who was pictured. Did you see this? Jimmy Carter's like 96 years old now. Uh, His wife, Rosalind, is, um, I think, eight years younger than he is. And the Bidens, when they were in um, Georgia, went to visit him. And there's this odd picture where they're sitting in chairs, the Carters, and Joe and Jill are kind of kneeling down. And just the camera angle makes it look like the the Bidens are giants and the um, Carters are like these little dolls um, obviously, you know, when you get to be in your 90s, you know, you, you know and I'm sure the fact that they were sitting down means some difficulty standing up straight for a picture. I'm sure they would have done that. Um, and, you know, Jimmy Carter continues to speak out at the age of 96. It's amazing how long it's been since he was elected president back in 1976. Peanut farmer from Georgia. Anyway, I digress. Back to Liz. Um, CNN reports that in the closed door session, at Sea Island, she said, we can't whitewash what happened on January 6th or perpetuate Trump's big lie. Uh, it is a threat to democracy. What he did on January 6th is a line that cannot be crossed. So again, this is going to get a lot of attention because because of this. There's no other election coming up until the fall of 2022. So this has become... The election. And political reporters love to focus on elections. Political reporters also love to focus on Republican dissension, Republican intra party fights. And Donald Trump and Liz Cheney are giving them one. I spent a lot of time yesterday. Let's go to number two. On the uh, COVID situation, I've got a column up on foxnews.com about uh, the New York Times quoting all these hex- experts in a big front page story saying we're not going to reach herd immunity, just not going to happen, not going to happen anytime soon, might happen you know, way down the road because not enough people are getting vaccinated and the virus is spreading to these different variants. And in this column, I also uh, talk about this uh, piece in The Atlantic interviewing uh, vax- you know, what are called no-vaxxers, why are they reluctant to get the shot and all of that. So I spent a lot of time on that yesterday. Today, I just want to briefly touch on this a follow-up piece of the New York Times about a U.S. A UCLA project trying to figure out why so many people don't want to get this life-saving shot. So they, uh, this project, I guess they did kind of a poll or a kind of a, a focus group and found the following. There's one way you can get more people to get vaccinated against COVID-19. It's called bribery. And that's my word, not the Times's, not UCLA's. But uh, they did they did a group and they divided these people to different groups and they offered them different incentives to get the shot. Well, if you give um, people a hundred dollars to get the shot, let them say, you know what, I actually have been meaning to get the shot, and maybe I should get the shot. Now that's just not right bribery. But there's a this is actually happening in the real world. In West Virginia, the governor there, Jim Justice, announced that the state would give young people—I'm not sure how young you have to be—$100 bonds if they got an inoculation. Uh, in Maryland, Republican Governor Larry Hogan uh, is offering state employees $100 to get vaccinated, and if you're already state—if you're a state employee who already got vaccinated, you get the $100 anyway because otherwise it would be unfair, right? Uh, in any event. Just looking at the details here, another route is to tell people in these focus groups, um, would you get the vaccine if that meant you wouldn't need to wear a mask or social distance in public? And there was another group that were told they would still have to do those things. So that also produced an uptick, but look at the partisan split here. When told they wouldn't have to ma- wear a mask or social distance, 82% of Democrats, but just 53% of Republicans said they would do that. Now, the messages are interesting. If you frame it as get the va- a vaccine, it will protect you. Uh, OK. Then if you get the messages, it will protect you and those around you, the change does very little. Two thirds of people in both groups said they would get the shots, even though it's a big part of Biden's pitch. Be a patriot. Get the shot. Protect your family. Protect your friends. Protect your colleagues at work. Uh, now, what about if a vaccine is endorsed by Donald Trump or Anthony Fauci as opposed to your doctor? Well, the effects were small. Uh, telling people their doctor, pharmacist, or insurer believed the vaccine to be safe and effective had no discernible effect. Endorsement by Fauci uh, produced an uptick of about six percentage points. Um, Trump's endorsement um, doesn't have as much uh, clout as it used to. President Biden's endorsement. Oh, this is interesting. The opposite partisan effect, which just drives me crazy, since we're talking about saving lives here, people. Um if Trump comes out and endorses it, it means fewer Democrats wanted to take it in 2020. When Biden comes out and endorses it now, fewer Republicans want to take it in 2021. There is research according to the Times that says paying for vaccines can backfire. That's interesting. Maybe people feel like, well, if they got to bribe me to do it, then it must not be safe or something like that. So as I said earlier, about a third of the people offered this hundred bucks. They did it at different levels, 2550. Um, were more likely to get the vaccine if you have some moolah attached. About 15% of the unvaccinated said they would be less likely to get vaccination, even if you paid them off. By the way, uh, there's reporting today that the FDA next week will approve a Pfizer vaccine for use in kids uh, 12 to 15. I think that's great. Get more of them vaccinated, make the schools even safer. uh, And I hope that that can ramp up pretty quickly. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. You know, on the surface, it sounds like another sort of celebrity couple gossip story. But it's actually a story of global importance because there's so much money involved. Sad to report that Bill and Melinda Gates, two of the richest people in the world, are getting divorced. Um, now, I once went out to Seattle uh, to a conference sponsored by the Gates Foundation. Um, they were, the two of them, Bill and Melinda were showing a group of reporters and others around. I got a chance to ask a couple of questions to Bill Gates and uh, Melinda Gates asked questions as well. They always just seemed like a great couple, you know. And um, of course, you never know what's going on inside anybody's marriage. Now, this is not the situation with Jeff Bezos. It's not a tabloid uh, kind of situation. That obviously got enormous attention, again, because so much money is involved. And, Jeff Bezos' former wife, Mackenzie Scott, has now taken the, some of the billions that she received in their divorce settlement and is being a philanthropist and giving out a lot of money. Now, you know, Gates, of course, is most famous for founding Microsoft and changing the computer world. But really, you know, if you look at it 50 years from now, the thing I think he'll be most remembered for is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So it's being reported. That, that foundation, by the way, is an endowment of $50 billion. It's had immense influence I mean, around the world. Global health, particularly fighting AIDS in Africa, early childhood education, reducing deaths caused by malaria. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It gives out about $5 billion a year. Now, they put out a statement saying, After a great deal of thought and a lot of work on our relationship, we have made the decision to end our marriage. They said they had built a foundation that works all over the world to enable all people to lead healthy, productive lives and will continue to share a belief in that mission, but no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in this next phase of our lives. I read they have three kids. The youngest one is 18. So, you know, that next one's going to college, and I guess that's the time they decided to split. So, Uh, since they have been married for 27 years. And I've seen conflicting reports now about whether there's a prenup or not. But nevertheless, they will both have, they will both continue to be among the richest people in the world. Um, They're worth, uh, Gates himself is worth an estimated $124 billion. That's according to Forbes. So, you know, among other things, in addition to the foundation, the Gateses are the largest owners of farmland in America. I didn't know that. Um, they have vast investments, uh, they have big stakes in the Four Seasons hotel chain, auto nation, car dealerships, and on and on and on. Uh, the Times saying that they have faced relationship struggles over the past several years, according to people close to them, several times when the relationship neared collapse, but they worked to keep it together. Gates uh, now has stepped down from the board of Microsoft, not because of this, and Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's outfit, so he could spend more time with his family, um, And we'll leave it right there. Okay, let's move on to number four. Still, there are a lot of ripples uh, from the colossal mistake made by The Washington Post, The New York Times, and NBC News in the reporting on Rudy Giuliani. The FBI supposedly uh, briefing Rudy on the fact that he was a target of Russian intelligence disinformation campaign against Joe Biden. Um, and, uh, Paul Favre of the Washington Post has a, a further piece on this. Incorrect information from government sources apparently led the three news organizations to publish this erroneous claim. Uh, Times editor Dean Baquet is interviewed. He tells the Post, we weren't rigorous enough. He says, I think this is very candid. I think we all tend to drop our guard when we get beat and are trying to catch up. The Post had to scoop first. We need to grill sources more to make sure we understand exactly what they're confirming. We've all discussed it, corrected it, and we need to do better. Dealing with anonymous sources in law enforcement and intelligence is always hard. Now, there's another piece of the Post story that did get as much attention. The Post also said it had to correct that OAN, One America News Network, had been warned by the FBI as well. That's been retracted. Now, the uh, interim executive editor of the Washington Post, Cameron Baer, declined to comment to his own reporter. Uh, The Post is searching for a successor to Marty Baron, so he gets to talk to the editor of the New York Times, but not the editor of his own paper. CNN, it turns out, also picked up on the inaccurate Post story, uh, did this in a segment on Friday, but a network spokeswoman said the network didn't intend to issue a correction, but there was a, a, a web story on the Post correction course you do it on the air but then when the story collapses you don't do it on the air you do it on the web and, and i'm not singling out cnn that's pretty common so the last piece of this is that there wasn't there was the competitive pressure of nbc and the times trying to match the post scoop but also a lack of a response from rudy and his representatives what happened is because if you're a reporter who knows rudy giuliani or covers him at all or has covered the story or covered the rush investigation you have his cell phone number And you text him and he texts right back, believe me. And sometimes he'll call and you can't get off the phone for an hour. He loves talking to reporters. But what happened is during the FBI search warrants at his home and office, they seized all his electronic devices, including his phones. So if any of the reporters tried to text him, hey, Rudy, do you have a position on this? They didn't get an answer because he didn't have his phone. Now, is Giuliani savvy enough after all his years as mayor and as a presidential candidate, as Trump's lawyer, to have put out a more definitive statement? Maybe he didn't know the story was coming until uh, until it did come, but that I think is a piece of the puzzle. Maybe if he had, if the FBI had not seized his phones, maybe the news organizations would have been a little more cautious, I guess you would say, uh, without if he had a hard denial because they didn't have that in the early, at least the early drafts of the story that I saw. All right, number five, we got a full plate today here. Uh, President Biden yesterday lifting the refugee cap to 62,500. Now this was, no question about it, uh, it was actually a double reversal. So uh, Donald Trump had gotten a lot of criticism for li- limiting the number of legal refugees to just 15,000. During the campaign, Biden said, I will raise it to 125,000. So he gets into office and when it comes time to like, you know, whatever the process is officially notify the State Department he says, okay, we're going to keep it at 15000 for now. Enormous backlash from Democrats. And within a day, Jen Psaki's out there saying, well, you know, that, that was just an interim thing and we are going to raise it, but we have a lack of resources. So so yesterday, Biden putting out a statement, today I'm revising the ref- refugee emissions cap to 625 for this fiscal year. This erases the historically low number set by the previous administration, did not which did not reflect America's values as a nation that welcomes and supports refugees. But then in the same statement, the President of the United States says, the sad truth is we will not achieve 62,500 emissions this year because they don't have the resources, he says. We're working quickly to undo the damage of the last four years. So blames Trump, uh, goes with the lower figure because he felt like he just couldn't do it because of the crisis at the border that they don't call a crisis. A lot of resources, it takes a lot of human beings to process. People, make sure they don't have COVID, make sure they're not terrorists. You know, you don't just throw open the doors. Um, and so he said 15, then he said, we'll change that. Now he's saying 62,000, but it's not going to happen this year because they don't have the resources. So nobody really knows how many refugees will get in. And finally, here's a little bonus story number six. Um, I'll rely on Steve Krakauer on this. He publishes the Fourth Watch newsletter. You've seen him on Media Buzz a number of times. Uh, I recommend his newsletter. He um, tees off on a memo from the Washington Post uh, to its employees about what you can do and not do when it comes to parades, demonstrations, and protests. And this has been an issue going back to the late 80s when the woman who was then covering the Supreme Court for the New York Times, Linda Greenhouse, went to an abortion rights march or... Demonstration, and there was a huge uh, uproar over that because how can you continue to cover the Supreme Court on this issue when you've made your views known and the Washington Post wouldn't allow such things well times have changed and so the Post is getting a little more lenient but it's really confusing i got to say so um, here's the guidance we're giving so that you don't engage in political or partisan activity says the Washington Post editors first example It would be fine to participate in a celebration at a BLM plaza, Black Lives Matter plaza, but not a protest there, or attend a pride gathering, but not a demonstration at the Supreme Court. So uh, Krakauer says a celebration at BLM plaza, but not a protest, what? As Wesley Lowery, formerly an African-American reporter for the Washington Post, uh, laid out in the thread today, how does an attendee ensure that one does not become the other? Is the location not definitionally political? You go to Black Lives Matter, what are you expecting? Plaza. There's a 100% chance that any number of readers would argue that attending a, quote, celebration, says Lowry, at Black Lives Matter Plaza amounts to the appearance of advocacy. And thus the examples in this memo violated the actual stated policy in this memo. Okay, I got to go along with this. I can't figure out what's allowed and what's not allowed. So here's another example from the memo. Quote, A newsroom employee would not hold a protest sign at a parade or wear a hat supporting or opposing a political candidate or legislative policy. Okay, that seems fair, but then here's the rest of the sentence. But might wear a rainbow cap, wave an American flag, or wear a T-shirt celebrating their identity. So, I'm sorry, I'm just like scratching my head here. You can not hold a protest sign, you can't wear a hat, but you can wear a rainbow hat, which is, you know, sort of a gay pride thing. You can't, you can wave an American flag and say, I'm an American, but you can't wear a MAGA cap, make America great again. You can wear a T-shirt that's about celebrating your identity, whether you're black, Latino, gay, woke, whatever, but you can't, Hold a sign in a protest? Okay, I cannot decipher this. If this was supposed to clarify, it's doing anything but. Here's a crack. hour take. Steve says, uh, waving an American flag at a celebration? Okay. Waving an American flag at a demonstration? Not allowed. In theory, this makes sense. In practice, who can parse what counts as political and what doesn't? These convoluted and toothless rules ultimately help no one and will surely annoy the newsroom in an attempt to put this veil of objectivity that no one, especially the audience, even believes is really there in the first place. Well, I, I've long been conflicted about this because, for example, here's one thing we, we can absolutely agree on. If you're a political reporter or editor or producer, you don't give money to political campaigns, right? Now, is your right as an American citizen to give money to politicians or PACs or political campaigns, but you forfeit that right when you are part of a news gathering process. I have no problem with that. But I don't think I like the idea of anyone marching in a pro-Trump rally, an anti-Trump rally, an abortion rights rally, a pro-life rally, because, I mean, especially if you cover politics or edit politics or talk about politics... Because eventually these issues are going to come up. Now, one of the things that newspapers have grappled with is, well, should sports writers uh, be bound by this? Because they're not covering a campaign or an issue like abortion or immigration for that matter. But we've all seen, especially in places like ESPN, how much politics does get involved in sports these days. Whether it's national anthem protests, whether it's, you know, a championship team refusing to go to the Trump White House. It just becomes really hard to separate. And so my, I don't know about this memo and I don't know how you parse it, uh, but you don't want it. There is such a thing as an appearance of a conflict. Everyone knows journalists have opinions. You know, nobody's claiming they don't. The question is their challenge in keeping those personal opinions out of their writing, out of their uh, appearances on television, out of their Twitter feeds where they often let down their guard. And some don't even bother, uh, especially if they're anti-Trump. So it, maybe it's an insoluble problem, but it seems to me there are bright red lines. And then there are these sort of squiggly lines. And this thing is a squiggly memo. And it doesn't solve anything. Squiggly. That ain't going to do it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, I hope when we talk about the vaccination, if you haven't gotten it, you're trying to get it or get it for somebody else. or Just talk to people about how this is important for the country. I mean, this is a, it's amazing. It's a miracle that we have these Pfizer and Moderna and J&J vaccines. And it would be a shame if more of the country didn't get it, whether we, we reach this mystical level of herd immunity or not. Thank you again for listening. Uh, please subscribe. You know all the places you can get it. We're back here tomorrow with more Meter.